Hey gang, time to discuss chapter five of HLA Hart's Concept of Law. And you know this is an important one because the name of the chapter is begins with law as, right? So law as the union of primary and secondary rules. Now to get there, Hart's going to build on several ideas, some of which we've already talked about in the introduction to this reading, where Hart criticizes Austin's command theory. Right, one big idea is the nature of rules that create obligations. So we're going to talk about what it means for a rule to create an obligation. Secondly, the external point of view and the internal point of view. Hart's theory of positivism relies strongly on the idea of kind of a first-person actor, that to understand the law and kind of the nature of legal systems, you have to appreciate it from the point of view of actors within that system. And so we can distinguish an external point of view of the system and an internal point of view of the system. And that internal point of view is what's going to give us a theory of what legal systems really are. And finally, we're going to distinguish between two different kinds of rules, primary and secondary rules. And in particular, we're going to look at uh, certain kinds of secondary rules, rules which recognize other rules as valid, for example. Okay, let's get started. So recall that Hart has already argued to us that The picture of law as a sovereign's orders backed by threats is a failed understanding of law. And he thinks there's another path for positivism to take. Positivism, again, being that theory that law can be identified solely by looking at social facts. Okay, these are things that have happened in the world rather than principles of morality. So we can know what the law is by looking at things that have happened. All right, that's that's a rough explanation, and we'll, we'll do more with that later on. Okay, so what is Hart's way forward? Well, first of all, he wants us to distinguish between the sense of being obliged to do something and having an obligation. Now, don't get hung up necessarily on those words. Um, Let's look at the two concepts. So the former, being obliged to do something, describes coercion, you know, a psychological concept concerning fear or, um, or, or more generally, some felt personal need to do something. You're obliged to do something if kind of taking account of all the reasons out there, you think you're better off uh, doing that thing. Whereas the latter, having an obligation, seems more of a, uh, well, it's a consequence of rules, whether moral, interpersonal, or within a legal system. Uh, An obligation is something that doesn't appear or disappear because you feel like it. Rather, it seems to follow from some community or system of which you're a part. Okay, so regardless of the words, does that feel right to you that there's a difference between feeling like you are doing something because you feel like it's best for you or, you know, feeling like you're compelled or, or just making a calculation about something and having an obligation or, or, or feeling like you have a, a duty? One way to see the divergence of these two things might be to think about a situation in which the circumstances compelling you to do something have kind of gone away. For example, maybe the the gunman drops his or her gun or is apprehended by the police. You probably wouldn't feel any need, any desire to hand over your money to the assailant at that point. Indeed, the the moment your prediction about what would happen if you didn't hand over the money changed, the moment that prediction changed, so too did what you decided to do, right? You were only ever motivated by a prediction of the consequences of compliance, In other words, you were the Holmesian bad man in the situation with the gunman. Hart says there's another kind of feeling, there's another kind of phenomenon that 
we appreciate at a kind of gut level, and that's the phenomenon of obligation, the sense that even though we may predict fine consequences no matter our course of action, we still feel as though there is a a duty or some reason that we can identify to behave in a particular way. So suppose, for example, that you knew for sure that no one would ever find out if you failed to pay your taxes, or no one would ever find out if you took a $5 bill from a register. I think there, no matter what you end up deciding to do, whether you decide to uh, break the law or not, you, you might appreciate that there's an obligation not to take advantage of the situation. And we can even take one that's less obviously morally laden. You come upon a stoplight uh, and it's late at night. You don't expect any other cars to be around. I mean, there's a chance, but you think it's very low. Are you going to wait at the red light even though you could go on through and you know there are no cops and there's no camera? Is there an obligation to sit there at the light until it turns green? Hmm. Does the rule itself impose an obligation to do so? Or does it leave you free to decide on your own whether it's safe to go? It seems like it's more than a suggestion, the rule that says that you stop at red lights. Now, whether you accept that suggestion, whether you accept that responsibility, that's, that's a totally different thing. We're only talking here about whether there is a phenomenon inherent in the experience of being in a society that some rules create responsibilities within us, no matter the probability of detection and no matter the probability of bad consequences. All right, so we're starting here with Hart to build up quite a a panoply of of different ideas about obligation and rules and everything. We've got this idea of custom, that people regularly do something. You know, maybe people regularly convene at the shopping mall on Friday nights to drive their cars around. They just do this. It would seem to misdescribe that situation to say that there was a rule that people show up to do that. So there's a difference between custom and habit and rules. But there's also a difference between rules that impose obligations of the kind that we've been talking about and rules that don't. Uh, Here's what Hart says. Rules of etiquette or correct speech are certainly rules. They're more than convergent habits or regularities of behavior. They're taught and efforts are made to maintain them. They're used in criticizing our own and other people's behavior in their characteristic normative vocabulary. As in, you ought to take your hat off. It's wrong to say you was. But to use in connection with rules of this kind the words obligation or duty would be misleading and not merely stylistically odd. It would misdescribe a social situation. Okay, so what is a rule for Hart that creates an obligation as opposed to other kinds of rules? Well, obligation-creating rules are ones that are, in some sense, socially necessary. So maybe there's not a fine line, though, but but Hart says that obligation-creating rules generally have some seriousness of social pressure behind them, that they're thought to be necessary to some aspects of social life, meaning living together. And they often call for some sacrifice. That's why we need a rule. They ask for what would not necessarily be in the individual's self-interest. And it's these sorts of rules that we are going to examine when we think about what the law is. These rules can't be understood under the Holmesian bad man predictive theory or Austin's command theory. He says, roughly, until the importance of the difference between the predictive value of a rule and a rule's function as giving a reason for doing something, right? So that's, that's the way most of us take rules, is, is providing reasons to do things, the, the fact that there's a rule there. Until that distinction is grasped, 
we cannot properly understand the whole distinctive style of human thought, speech, and action which is involved in the existence of rules and which constitutes the normative structure of society. Now, in that sentence, Hart is telling us not just an important feature of his theory, but why he's interested in this at all, right? What, when we ask what law is, we are trying to explain this kind of distinctive style and set of speech patterns and set of actions that you're learning about, that you've learned about so far in law school. What are we really doing when we do these things, and how are they distinct from the other things that we do as humans? The explanations we have so far are too simple. So this gets to the second big point of this chapter, the distinction between the external point of view and the internal point of view. So the external point of view looks at rules as predictions of what people will do, and the internal point of view is looking at them as one who lives under them, looking at them from the point of view of the person who is asked to follow them, and uses them not as a prediction of what will happen if he or she defects from the society in which he or she lives, but as a guide to conduct. So rules are an answer to what should I do. Rules are not an answer to the question of what will happen if I do what I want to do. I mentioned last time Hart's example of the chess players, that the rules of chess dictating how the queen moves, that these rules as they're written down or they're told to you, aren't just signals about what will happen if you move the queen in the wrong way. They are signals to you about what you should do, right? They are a guide to the way that you play the game. He gives another example here of the red light. Is seeing a red stoplight a little datum? Is it, a, is it just a piece of information that you use to predict the consequences of driving in a particular way? So if you see a red light, do you think to yourself, well, that's a signal that if I just blow through this intersection, I'm likely to pay a stiff fine? Or generally, maybe not always, but generally, do you see the red light as itself a reason to stop? So the red light is more than just a sign that people will in fact tend to stop at stoplights, but seeing it from the internal point of view, the point of view of the drivers, the people living under the system of rules, the red light is a signal to people to stop. It's a reason to stop. An external observer, they'd only be able to record that people regularly stop at red lights. And so the light is a signal that, boy, people are probably going to stop, right? Well, the criticism is not here that the external point of view is wrong, only that it's incomplete if your goal is to try to understand the meaning of the legal system, the meaning of the system of rules. Rules don't just provide predictions concerning bad consequences, but reasons to impose them. We need to understand both of these, Hart says, in order to understand how law is operating in a society. All right. Now, on to the big point of this chapter. All aboard! Let's suppose you're on board with the idea that rules have to be taken from an internal point of view if we're to understand, at least rules of obligation, if we're to understand the way that people conceive of rules, the way they think about them, and their function within a social unit. Could we describe then, suppose we take that on board, could we describe law as just a list of rules of obligation? the things that you must do or not do in society, and you take them as signals, etc. But uh, is that all law is? And here Hart says that doesn't seem right. So this is another way that the command theory fails, that law is just that set of commands issued by a sovereign. If that's all law were, were this list of rules of obligation, there'd be no way to settle doubts about laws or doubts about their meaning, right? So we'd have some uncertainty. We'd have no rules for deliberately changing the law. 
So how do we explain moving from one regime to another or moving from a rule about traffic, you know, a speed limit of 55 to a speed limit of 65? How, how does that ever happen? And aren't there consequences rather than just what Hart calls diffuse social pressure for following the rules? So aren't there consequences for, for not following the rules? Uh, what are the rules for that? Is there authoritatively empowered adjudication? Or is there just kind of random, oh, that didn't seem like a very good thing to do? It, you know, in our system, at least we know there is authoritatively empowered adjudication. There are courts. Are there rules for those things? In fact, it seems when we think about the way we live in our legal system, and we think about most legal systems, there aren't just rules about do this, don't do that, rules of behavior. There also seem to be rules about rules. There are rules to identify kind of basic rules. There are rules to change them, rules about applying them, right? Think about our constitution, which says, you know, which dictates what a statute is. It has to pass both houses of the legislature and be signed by the, by the president. What kind of law is that? It seems to be a rule which we use to recognize new rules. So let's call these rules about rules secondary rules. Secondary because they are secondary to primary rules, the rules that you normally think of as, as rules or laws, laws which constrain how you drive and how you behave. And here's Hart's big insight, that a legal system just is the union of primary and secondary rules. It consists of rules that we follow that point out to us other rules as being rules of the system. And it tells us how to change that. We have rules about how to change those rules and how we adjudicate them when they supposedly violate it. Now, basic to these secondary rules is what Hart calls the rule of recognition. This is the rule that identifies the primary rules as the group's rules. So how do we know what the law in the United States is? Well, we know what statutes are validly passed because we look to the Constitution, which provides a secondary rule, a rule of recognition. We also know that courts can make common law. And so we have a rule about what's valid and what's not valid based in the common law. It's not as clear as what's in the Constitution. But when a court announces a new decision in a common law case, we know that the rule and reasoning behind that outcome can be used to apply in a new case. What a judge is overheard saying during a dinner or what you find written on a fortune cookie or what you find written on some scrap of paper posted to a building, those are not law. And no one can be thrown in jail or fined or anything because of what's on those things unless there is some other law which points to those things as authoritative. So here's what Hart says about the rule of recognition. This will specify some feature or features, possession of which by a suggested rule, is taken as a conclusive affirmative indication that it's a rule of the group to be supported by the social pressure it exerts. So what makes something a law in our society is that the legislature's passed it or a common law court has announced it or that it's inferred in the common law, but that it is picked out by more basic rules, by secondary rules we have in our system for identifying such things as the law. And if you think about it, that seems logically necessary. We have to have some way of figuring out what things people have said in the past or what reasoning they've used in the past constitute our law and which things don't. And even if we don't write those things down, we have a way, we have a set of reasons that we consult to identify such things. And that complex bunch of reasons, written and unwritten, that constitutes the rule of recognition. 
All right, now this is all going to tie together, especially in the next chapter. But think of it this way. When someone enters a contract, or when a legislator passes a statute, or when a judge issues a new rule, he or she is complying with, or is acting in accordance with, better put, a secondary rule, another rule of the system. And importantly for Hart, he or she is doing so from the internal point of view, seeing those rules which grant those powers to make law or to change it or to adjudicate it, seeing those as guides to his or her official conduct. Okay? This is going to, as we'll see in the next chapter, help us understand law much better, at least from the positivist perspective. As Hart puts it, there's a constant pull towards an analysis of because legal concepts like jurisdiction and validity, you can think of other examples, in the terms of ordinary or scientific fact-stating or predictive discourse. But this can only reproduce their external aspect. To do justice to their distinctive internal aspect, we need to see the different ways in which the lawmaking operations of the legislator, the adjudication of a court, the exercise of private or official powers, and other acts in the law are related to secondary rules. I want you to think in terms of this chapter for our discussion, I want you to be ready to tell me how you think about the red light, whether you feel like you can intuit a difference between rules of obligation and other kinds of rules. And I'm going to ask a few of you to identify some secondary rules and some primary rules. I want to make sure that you can distinguish those things. All right. Well, I'll see you next time in chapter six.